Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. Welcome. This program is produced weekly by the Christ Life Fellowship. Check us out, christ-life.org. Well, today is the final installment of this amazing series from Warren Litzman called Renewing the Mind. It's been so wonderful to have all of your comments, and we appreciate all the wonderful things you've said. Now, of course, next week we'll start a new series with Warren, but this is the final chapter in the Renewing the Mind series. So let's get right into it. Here's Warren. Let's look at another verse. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make of himself of twain one new man so making peace. What a loaded verse this is. What is he really saying here? Without going into the detail of each line, what he says is that God through Jesus Christ is making one new man. What's behind that? Up until this point, there had been two men. Two men in God's plan. Now you have to keep in your mind that in the Bible there are only three races of people. Great numbers of nationalities, but you never want to confuse a nationality with a race of people. There are only three races. There's the Jew, the Gentile, and the new creation race. There are no other races in the scripture. And so what he says here is that for the first time, God has taken the Jew and the Gentile and made them the same by Christ in them. A twain, two men, the Jew and the Gentile, and he's made them one. Well, we don't go along with that very well, do we? That's why people don't like Paul. He says what Jesus told him to say. Paul says to Israel, now that the gospel goes to the Gentile, the only way you can be saved, dear Jew, dear Israelite, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the line previous in this verse say? It says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. How was the Jew saved in the scriptures? How did Israel serve God? By ordinances. By the law. That was their salvation. What does he say here? That's been abolished. That's abolished. Well, it it wasn't done away with. It just was made of no avail. Why? It was nailed on the cross of Christ. At least five times in the epistles, the apostle Paul has a statement. Let's see, what is one? One of them is, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That statement wasn't written so that all of us backslidden Baptists could get right with God. That statement was written to say to Israel that you are a sinner now and none of your law, none of your ordinances, nothing you have believed previously 
matters. If you're going to be saved, you're going to have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ just like a Gentile. I told you wouldn't like that. Don't tell that to any of the Jesus Jewish people. They'll fight you. But that's what happened. God fixed the whole world in sin after the cross. And the Jew no longer could rely on Abraham. He could not rely on his works. He couldn't rely on the prophecy. To this day, it's like that. If a Jew today is bona fidely born again, he has to consider himself as a non-Jew the moment he believes on Jesus Christ. Because there are no Jews in Christ. What happened? God made one man. That's the in Christ message. Just one. So what, what happened when he made this one man? This awful thing took place. Israel lost everything that made her a Jew. For God would let them be saved by keeping the commandments, even if they could. Ordinances, the Torah, at least 640 of them. New laws. He wouldn't let them be saved by keeping a one of them. Why? He's starting them all over. He's making them babes in Christ. They can't come to God and say, we're the seed of Abraham, you are something special. God says, no, you're a sinner. The only way you'll be saved is by grace. That's the way it is today. So you can talk about Israel and the building of the temple and all you want to, but all of that will come in the tribulation period. It is not available today for the Jew. The only thing available for Israel today is to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, just like the rest of them. So how do we reach Jews? Through Abraham? No, through Jesus Christ. What is it the Jew loves? Abraham. Who does he hate? Jesus Christ. That's a big barrier, isn't it? That's a hard thing. But God's going to start them out as babes with no past. No Israelite today can look at God and say, we have a past honor. We Christians have perpetuated their past. We honor and glorify it and do a whole lot of things to the Jewish past. It isn't ours today to honor. Now, if you want to wait till the tribulation period, you can see Israel pick up all the law again. And she'll start off in the sacrifices. And the temple will be open again. Personally, I don't want to wait for that. Be nice to live the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, but the last three and a half are hell on earth. Half the Jews will be killed. The other half will evangelize the world, even the Gentile world. But there are one new man now because God started it all over with Jesus Christ and the belief. Well, let's see. I've got one more verse of scripture. Think you can stand it? I know it's tea time, so be patient. <laughs> Ephesians 4 and 24. Ephesians 4 and 24. It just picks up in this 24th verse and says, And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I want to bring out some scriptures that leave no doubt that you start off new. 
You start off as a babe. You start off in Christianity with no past. Now what can I do for those of you that's picked up a past since you've been saved? Forget it. Forget it. Doesn't really matter. Somebody says, well, I just can't serve God. I got so hurt in the church. Forget it. Somebody lied on me. Forget it. Somebody stole from me who was a Christian. I hear that all the time. How long the money and they stole from me? Forget it. Move on. Move on. Well, I'm going to make them pay. Move on. You know why? You probably won't straighten them out. The father's the only one that can do that. Always remember, children in the family do not correct the children. I never let, I had an older son who at times felt like he should correct the other two. I corrected him for that. He was really right. He found them doing wrong things. But it's not his business to correct the children. That's the father's business. So in the body of Christ, believers do not correct the believers. So the next time Sister Susie... <laughs> that's my all things term. Next time Sister Susie comes with a word and tells you what you ought to do, say, hey, until I get that from my father, sis. You're my sister. You're in the family. But I take it only from the Father, not you. Amen? Amen. Children don't correct the children. The verse says we put on the new man. That, that doesn't mean that there's some kind of robe you put on. That's not a carryover from the Old Testament where you put on a robe of righteousness. What it means in the Greek is you think differently. You think now I'm the new man in Christ Jesus. Well, you're such a good audience. I'll take a break right here. As I've said to you before, our general subject is the renewal of the mind. Paul said, be not conformed to this world, but be ye renewed in the spirit of your mind. And for the believer who's ongoing in the Lord, there are so many things that you could have your mind renewed of. Living in our world today, it's uh, so conglomerated with all sorts of things that it's hard to know what it is you ought to concentrate on. So many times I hear people say, well, what you've got to do in the Lord's work, and especially in the ministry of the Word, is to be balanced. To be balanced. And I understand this in a certain sense, that you ought not to be far out in any area, that you should be uh, mostly as spiritual people, evangelical in your theology, as Christ-like people. However, there are certain things that push us to a either a different balance or to a greater extreme than other things because to maintain this position and understanding you have to take the word literally as it is not an easy thing to rightly divide the word of truth. Second Timothy 2 and 15 is the greatest challenge that any believer has in his life to be able to rightly divide the word. Most people have not learned to do that and most ministries do not stress that or even manifest it or preach it, let alone preach it. But it becomes very important to me to have the scriptures rightly divided because there are different uh, ages in the scripture, there are different plans in the scripture. God had several different aspects to his ongoing plan. 
definite changes that he made from one plan to another. And it's good to know that, especially if you're wanting to really depend upon the Word to be your life. There are many things we depended upon in our life. We depended upon promises at one time. We just plucked out promises, and I've heard a lot of people say there's 30,000 promises in the Bible. You can depend on God's promise. This, of course, is not rightly dividing the Word when you do that, because a whole lot of those promises don't refer to people who are Gentiles. It don't refer to people who are born again. It doesn't refer to people who live in a different age. And so to rightly divide the word becomes very important if you're really depending on the word. We depend upon the scriptures to be the means by which we come to be who we are in Christ. You have to depend upon the scriptures in order for that to take place. And it's very obvious, as we make quite a point, that uh, the Apostle Paul had over a hundred occasions where he said we were in Christ. It's important to know that because he's the only one who said that. There are several other occasions where that prepositional phrase is used, but when Paul used it, he used it with a definality that this is what we are. We are in Christ. Christ is in us, an inseparable term and relationship. So you can't, you can't go somewhere else and find that. Outside of Paul, you can find nowhere else in the scripture where it teaches that a believer is in Christ. There are perhaps three or four occasions where Jesus leaned toward that idea. But as we've seen before, Jesus was withheld from the Father relating that because the time had not yet come. That means the dispensation of grace was necessary for the in Christ message to be fully exposed. And so God withheld it from his Son. Yet Christ veered in that direction every once in a while. Uh, like John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's a good illustration of how we receive our life definitely from the person of Christ. And uh, he'd use statements like I and you and you and me. And of course, his most prominent statement in that area is John 14 and 20, where he said that uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will know that as I am one with the Father, so are you and me and I and you. So he had things to say about it, but he never explained it, and he never said for whom it was or to whom it was. And so we are faced with the issue of the Apostle Paul, the only one in the Scripture that knew what it meant to be in Christ and was allowed to explain it. Of course, is the only one who knew what it meant to be in the body of Christ and was the only one to explain it. So we have to look to Paul and do so without being out of balance, as some people would say, there's no way you can go on with God and not know what Paul says. There are many indications of this that are important. All of Paul's epistles were written and available to what we call the early church. All of them. Not a single one of the Gospels was available to the early church period of that time. All of Paul's epistles was written by the year 68, and the first Gospel written, we believe, was either in 67 or 68. So it meant that all of his epistles were to be read previous to that. That's an ironical thought, because why would the Lord arrange it like that? For certainly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even John were capable of telling the story of what God was doing prior to that, but God didn't elect to have that happen. Why? Because these, was right, these would write of the old dispensation. Paul would write of the new. The believers who were coming about from the day of Pentecost on would be in the new dispensation. Grace would be God's theme. 
grace would work because Christ was in the human being. And this would not be a part of the historical record. Now, in the Gospels, and uh, the Gospels is our subject this afternoon, in the Gospels, we have a thing we call the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are those Gospels which are Judaistic and bear a heavy message concerning the historical record of Jesus. John's Gospel is a little different because John's Gospel is filled with uh, truth that carries us from one dispensation to another. The real bridge in the Bible that takes us from law to grace is probably found in John's Gospel. Years ago, I used to preach the book of Acts that was the bridge. If you read some of our old writings, you would hear me hear me say that, that the book of Acts is the bridge from Jesus on over into uh, the full gospel, so to speak, but uh, that's probably not so because the book of Acts now, as I look at it, is a heavily laden Judaistic book and it took some radical changes in God's plan in order to move from Acts into the ultimate plan of God where another would be the life of a believer. So the gospel and what is the gospel becomes a very important factor. I say to every ongoing believer that there's no way possible you can move on in the things of the Lord until you understand the gospel. And you'll never understand what the gospel is for us today without rightly dividing the word truth. We throw around all sorts of terms of what we believe and how we believe it. I've read the, the uh, synopsis at least of what most groups uh, believe to be their doctrine. And it's usually a very highly commingled idea that goes everywhere from Genesis and creation all the way through uh, the tribulation period and the millennium. Uh, but none of that, as put together by man, constitutes the gospel. What then is the gospel? What are we to believe is the gospel? But I think one of the most uh, difficult things a believer will have to do is to finally define in his lifetime what is the gospel for me. What is the gospel? There are four different gospels mentioned in the New Testament. Which is the true gospel? Well, they're all true. Which is the one God has to do with? They're all of God. Like all scripture is inspired by God. No scripture is originally written by man. All of it is written through man. But all of it has a significant place. It has a significant time. has a significant purpose. And... I would like to place in your mind the fact that your mind must be renewed to what is the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ for us today? Not what is the gospel in the scriptures, because you have different different gospels. You have the gospel of Israel in one place. You have the gospel of circumcision, the patrine gospel preached by Peter. You have the, the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ as preached by Paul. You have another gospel which we're going to talk about preached by Paul. You have the gospel of circumcision. We could go on and on with where the word gospel is used. It's used innumerable times in the scripture. But what is a gospel which is to be gospel to us? Now the very word gospel means good news, but what it means even more than that is something to us. Something to us. Now, we've all claimed the Bible as being something to us, and that's, that's good. You wanted to know about Abraham, you'd read in Genesis. You wanted to be lifted up, you'd go to David's Psalms. Uh, 
you wanted to be uh, stimulated, you might read the Songs of Solomon or Ecclesiastes. They all have different places we went to in the Scriptures. But none of that is the gospel by which we are to live, to feed upon, to be the news to us. So that's the determination you have to make. Of course, you probably haven't divided it like that. I would know what the gospel is first, and then I'd read David's Psalms and be blessed and lifted up because my foundation must be upon what I build. So first you lay a foundation. What is your foundation? Your foundation is what it is that constitutes, well, what I call the true gospel. I have to call it that, and you'll see why as we get into this, because there is a gospel that appears that is not true. So there is a true gospel which makes all the difference to the ongoing believer. We want to start to know really what it is God is saying to us. What God is saying to us. Let's pause there a moment because that's what the gospel is. What is God saying to us? Most of the scripture we have studied as believers in a lifetime was something God said to somebody else. Anything you read in the Old Testament is something God said to somebody else. Most of what you read <coughs> in the Synoptic Gospels is something God said to somebody else. So we are very careful as I get into this subject to make a difference between what God says to somebody else and what he says to us. Most of our preaching from the Old Testament is based on God said this to Abraham and he said this to Abraham and it was a changing thing in Abraham. It determined Abraham. And then we build our points as, as preachers that this is what God says to us and this is the way we ought to handle that. But that isn't what God said to us. We kidnapped it. We took something that wasn't said to us. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't bless that. That doesn't mean that God can't use that. What it means is that all our lives, most of us, have taken something that did not belong to us and expected God to bless it. Now, what does God do to that? We're his offspring. We're his children. He birthed us. What does that mean when we take something that he says to somebody else? Well, he has to have a stretch in his mind if he blesses us. I've often thought, if I continually take things that God says to others, and there's so many that do that, much of the kingdom message, the, the charismatic message that's preached today, which is what we call the kingdom message, is strictly what God says to somebody else. In fact, the whole kingdom message is specifically stated by God and Jesus Christ as belonging to Israel. So he said it to somebody else. We take it ourselves and use it. See? That's all right. I've been on a series of messages in the States to our groups there uh, on the Great Commission. And there are at least four notable points of the Great Commission. There's, uh, uh, what is it, Mark, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And uh, what is it, Luke says, go ye therefore teaching all nations and uh, uh, whatsoever things you remit shall be remitted in heaven is another one. Uh, as uh, the Holy Ghost will come upon you and you shall receive power and you shall be witnesses to the end of the earth. In every single occasion where the Great Commission, as we call it in the church, is stated in the Scriptures, on every occasion, it specifically says it's stated to the Twelve. In three of occasions, uh, Judas wasn't there, so it says eleven. But it specifically says to the Twelve. 
Well, you know what we've done with that, don't you? You've never been in a church in your life that didn't use go you into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. So what do we do? We kidnap that. The church from the beginning said, the Lord said it to the apostles, but he says it to the church. And so we have built it. I never built a building or sent out a missionary when I pastored that wasn't based on Mark 15, 16. That's okay. But what always happens when we take something that God says to somebody else is that what he says to us goes begging. And what finally happens is we so commingle the scriptures that what God says to us never gets known, specifically known. Well, if he didn't tell me to go into all the world as a born-again believer, then what did he tell me to do? It's okay if I want to take the command given to the apostles. I'm not one of them. The church is not one of them. But if I'm going to take them, then what am I going to do about what Jesus said to Paul where grace message comes forth of what we ought to do? Well, when I say that, most people don't know. They have the slightest idea what the Lord said to the Apostle Paul that the born-again believer ought to do. I won't ask you. You may know more than I do on the subject. But the simple facts are, we've taken a message that belongs to somebody else, and we've made it work. How is it that the Christian church has gone into all the world with the gospel when the challenge wasn't given to the church at all? Why did God bless it? Well, he blessed it for the same reason that I could preach on Abraham and Isaac and you'd get a big blessing out of it and your faith would grow and you may get something from God. Why would God bless that? It's simple. That's grace. Why would God bless our ignorance? That's grace. So the grace of God has been exemplified. But what we want to do finally is find out what God says to us. It's, it's one thing. It's one thing for God to say something wonderful to somebody else. That's another thing for God to speak to you. To you. It'd be possible that uh, I could be walking through the room here and two of you would be talking and one of you would say something very specific and very personal to this person, but as I passed by, I heard it. What would you think if I got up and related everything you said? That's what happens when we don't know what God says to us. So this afternoon, I'd like to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to renew your mind <coughs> on what God specifically says to us. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, we've spoken of this verse before, but it comes in here. God, first verse, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners in time past spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us. Now that's the, the line I want to bear out. If you've got your Bible, underline it. Spoken unto us. He has spoken unto us. How? By his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, 
and by whom also he made the worlds. There's that all things statement again we've been talking about. But it says here that in the last days, God will speak by his son. Well, it's important now to get defined about the son of God. God only has one son. Please understand that. He doesn't have two sons or three sons. Now John said, Beloved, now are we the sons, plural, sons of God, meaning every born-again believer. But there is no sons of God except through the one son. So the great miracle of grace is what Paul, I think, called the mystery of godliness, that God could take one son and put the spirit of that son in every believing sinner. There would still be only one son, though each of us would be direct offsprings of God as his son, but only by the one son. There's a lot of ramifications to that. Like when God looks in this room this afternoon, he doesn't see you folks here, somewhere around a hundred or more. That isn't what he sees. He sees one son in this room. He sees one son in over 100 different forms. It's like looking at a field of flowers. There's one God who creates them, but that every flower, even if they are all the same brand, are different. So he looks in this room and he sees only one son here in many different forms. No two humans alike. No two leaves on a tree alike. No two blades of grass alike. Because God alone could create like that. But whenever he birthed his children, they all had one seed in them. Just one. You've got the one seed in you, I've got the one seed in me. That's what makes us sons, but only by the one son. So this verse introduces us to the fact that God has spoken to us by his one son. Now, the epistle of Hebrews was written in what we call the Acts period. It was written before Acts 28, which places it somewhere between Acts chapter 13 and Acts 28. What was the purpose of this epistle to the Hebrews? It was that Christ might speak to the believers in that day. Why is Acts 13 an important scripture? Because it is probably at Acts 13 that the first signs of the true gospel that belonged to the born again were expressed. Why? Acts 13 is probably the same period as Galatians 1, which we'll get into a little later. What's Galatians 1? Where Paul has his revelation of the new gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's about the 13th chapter of Acts as far as chronological time is concerned. So that means that the epistle to the Hebrews, which is probably the last epistle written in the Acts period, is bearing out this message that God is going to speak to particularly Israel by his son. Now I made reference to this in another way in the session this morning. But let's look at it from a different direction. God is going to speak to Israel by his son. What does that mean? Prior to this time, Israel could only, or Israel was saved, not only, but Israel was saved by believing 
the promises that God had made to Israel. How were Israelites saved in the ministry of Jesus? They simply only needed to repent and be baptized. Acts 2.38 is the verse of scripture that relates that. That's, that was strictly for Israel. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's lacking in that verse? There's no birthing. There's no birthing. Any time a sinner repents, it is based on the fact that they already belong to God. Israel belonged to God. Israel was his wife. She was not birthed by God, therefore not born again, but Israel belonged to God. And so an Israelite could come back to God strictly by repentance and John the Baptist, water baptist. That's all they needed to do. Well, you can see there's a great difference between Acts 2.38 and Acts 16. There's a world of difference. The great difference there is the, the, the extreme change in dispensations because Acts 2.38 relates how Israel could be saved strictly by repentance and water baptism. But in the 13th chapter, Paul has a revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the birthing takes on visible form in the scriptures. And then Acts 16 says, all you need to do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So God speaks to us by his Son. That was different. Jesus himself preached to Israel that all you need to do is to repent and believe. Or repent and be baptized in water. But now that same Jesus is coming forth to humanity in a different form. He himself is speaking to the believer. He's a believer here. God has spoken to us before by prophet, but now he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Where is that son? He's in us. He's in us. What's happened? We've had the dispensational change. We've moved from law to grace. We've moved from Jesus of Nazareth to the Lord of glory. It's a whole different picture. That's the beginning of salvation in the new gospel that came from Jesus Christ. Make this point. This gospel that I'm talking to you about this afternoon comes from Jesus Christ. God speaks to us by his Son. Over in 1 John 1 and 5, this is my favorite scripture. I like to write about this uh, considerable. In fact, we've got a little book written on this fifth verse. 1 John 1 and 5. This then is the message. Ah, now we're getting down to the facts. This then is the message which we have what? Heard of him. Greek for that says heard from him. Heard by him. Prepositional phrase of any sort can be used there because it comes from him. It doesn't come from Abraham. Under the law, salvation was based on Abraham. Now it's based on hearing from him. This is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him no darkness at all. This is the message which we have heard of him. I wanted to establish this fact that God has spoken to us by his son. And that's 
a different gospel than any other to be found in the scriptures. Our minds must be renewed as to what that gospel is that God specifically speaks to us. Well, when did this gospel begin? Here we're reading from John's epistle, and John's epistle is written at least 28 years after Paul died. So he has the the reason his gospel and his epistles are different, and we can include them, though he, he is a Judaistic writer. We can include him in grace <coughs> is because he saw a lot. <coughs> he saw a lot of the early church. He saw that the early church had moved on and, and what they believed and what they taught. And when you read John's epistles, you're reading a fellow who lived longer than anybody else that knew Jesus. His epistles was written in 95. Paul's last epistle was in 68. So we had that distance of time there where, where uh, John saw and understood different things and he writes differently. When he says, uh, abide in Christ, that's his in Christ statement. Because you're already in Christ, he says, stay there. Actually, he can't get out of it, but what he's trying to do is make, bring us a consciousness of what it means to be in Christ. And so he said, this is the message which we've heard of him. We got it from Jesus Christ. Now, we print our Bibles. We print a New Testament. And it isn't unusual to see on the printing of a New Testament the words, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is. It's the gospel in two or three different forms. But the final gospel was the gospel where Jesus Christ spoke from within men, spoke to men from men, which was different. Well, that's it. That closes the door on this series called Renewing the Mind from Warren Litzman. What a blessing this has been to bring this to you each week over the last 11 weeks. Now, next week, Warren will be starting a new series on something, and we'll be telling you about that at the beginning of next week. Please visit our website, christ-life.org. Read all about this wonderful in Christ message. Our thanks to Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into these archives each week to bring you these wonderful, wonderful teachings from Warren Litzman. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And the program is produced weekly by Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ Life.